Uh, we're in a teaching series through the incredible book of Exodus. We just started last week. I highly recommend that you go back and you listen to that teaching because it basically sets the framework and the groundwork for where we'll be going throughout this series. We'll be in this series for a few weeks. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. We'll give you one for free. You can take it home, start reading it, start reading in Exodus. This story is an incredible story. Um, please turn to Exodus chapter 1. This is where we'll, we'll start today. Exodus 1, I'll read, and then, and then I'll pray, and we'll get right into it. Exodus 1. It's the second book of the Bible, by the way, so just get there pretty quick. These are the names of the son of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, Asher, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. So the music goes bum, bum, bum. Look, he said to the people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, awesome names, by the way, <laughs> They're, they're great names. When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous. And they give birth before the midwives arrive. It's a great, it's a great line. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, God gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order. To all his people. To all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but every, let every girl live. Let's pray. Lord, I, I ask today that there would be um, in our minds, in our hearts, uh, a shift in the way that we see systems and sin and slavery, and evil, and that you would slowly begin to move our paradigm toward 
what's good and right and true. And even if it costs us a lot, even if it's painful, even if we have to make drastic shifts in the way that we live on this world. Do that. We're your people, God, and we want to be formed into your image and into the way that you made us to be. So would you lead us through that, this teaching today? And Lord, I submit all of my capacities to you. I ask that you would help. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O God. In Christ's strong name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, Propaganda, who's a hip-hop artist and I say a theologian. Um, uh, if you've ever heard, heard him, he has a podcast, he has a few albums, that sort of thing. Um, he's also African-American, if you didn't know. He said, um, I recently heard him uh, in a lecture and he said, said, the African who was brought here to America on a ship has no business being a Christian. He says, no business at all. We shouldn't, he says, we, he's a Christian, we shouldn't have fell for this. He said, right? We shouldn't have fell for this. He said, unless the scripture is telling me that, that those who gave it to me didn't intend, they, I saw something in the scriptures that those who gave me the scriptures didn't intend for me to see. And so he said, what I, what I saw wasn't something that was intended. And he said, this is what we saw when reading the scriptures, is that you've built the people that were enslaving, you built Babylon. You think you're subduing the land, but you're actually building Babylon. He said, when we opened the Bible, we didn't open to the book of Acts, we opened to the book of Exodus and we saw Moses. That's what he saw, okay. Exodus is the fundamental justice story of the Bible. It is the way you get to what biblical justice is. If you want to know what the Bible says about justice or have a conversation around justice or biblical justice, you have to start in Exodus. It is the story that all the other stories in the scriptures take their cue for what justice and deliverance from injustice mean. And if we get into Exodus, or rather, if we let the story of Exodus get into us, we won't be allowed to simply spiritualize sin or spiritualize salvation. It actually is, it means a lot more than that. So to begin to prove what I'm saying, we have to back up a bit and do a little bit of super short groundwork. So two passages that I want you to turn to either in your Bible or in your, your imagination. In your Meaning, if you have the, the book of Genesis, like, seared into your imagination. I know some of you do. So Genesis 1, turn there in your mind or turn there in your Bible. Genesis 1, verse 26. This is the vision of humanity. This is God's vision for human flourishing, human, humanity. There's a lot here. I won't, I won't get into all the implications, but let me, let me just set this up. Then God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness. By the way, this is page 1, okay? Always start at page 1, right? Let us make man in our image, mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female he created them. This is a poem saying that God made man and woman like him. We were created to be co-rulers, man and woman. We were created equal, 
not the same, equal, to be co-rulers on this earth. That is our roles as uh, sons and daughters of God or creator, creation being made in the image of God. And then God said, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and over the birds in the sky, over every other living creature that moves on the ground. So they are, they weren't to necessarily rule each other, but they were to rule, co-rule the earth. They were to have, uh, make babies and multiply and then as co-rulers rule the earth. So mankind, male and female, are to co-rule the earth. Got that? Page one. And they're supposed to co-rule the earth, by the way, as uh, vegetarian gardeners. So that's, I don't, I don't even want to get into that, but that's kind of how it started. <laughs> Um, and then they're to, they're to um, have sex and make babies, right? So that's kind of the, 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 the first commandment there. Now, you might know what happens in Genesis 3. Serpent deceives Eve. Now, that's a very important comment. I don't use, I don't use that lightly. Serpent deceives Eve. Uh, we'll pick up on that next week, why that's important. Um, and both Adam and Eve disobey God. And God chose the, uh, uh, Adam and Eve chose the good for themselves. And then there's disintegration that enters into the whole human race with such a force that Adam and Eve run and hide from each other and then run and hide from God. And then in Genesis 18, we see the vision of renewed humanity. God calls a family and says, I will work my salvation plan through a family, the family of Abraham. And he says this to Abraham, Abraham, will, you will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on the earth will be blessed through him. So God's going to choose Abraham and then through, the, through Abraham, that project of this family, he's going to bless the entire world. He's going to redeem the world through this family. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. So Abraham is chosen, but he's chosen to live in a certain type of way. He's supposed to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. So Abraham is chosen. And then the way I want you to live into the world as a renewed human is by doing righteousness and justice. So that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he promised him. So God chooses this family. And God wants to, whatever God wants to do in the world, he wants to do through this one family. And the way he's going to do this thing in the world is by a family that's called to live in a different way of being a human. They're supposed to live their life with justice and righteousness. Now, this word justice is the first time the word justice is mentioned in the Bible. It's the, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. And mishpat basically means taking action to do righteousness. You will enact righteousness on this earth. That's how you are my, my people. That's how you will be my people in this world. You will live righteously before me and then act justly on the world. However, if you read the Genesis story, and a few weeks ago, we, uh, Ruthie taught from a really strange, obscure part in Genesis, um, the, the, the family's pretty messed up. The family doesn't do righteousness and justice at all. They're actually really dysfunctional. And so Genesis ends with the children of Israel having to flee their homeland and settle in Egypt because of a famine. And then they all die. And that's how Exodus 1 starts. They're, that family is all dead, but their descendants keep growing, growing in number. So they don't do justice and they don't take the actions necessary to create righteousness in the world. And Genesis ends. End of book of, book of Genesis. So we pick up in Exodus. Exodus 1 starts. And Exodus 1 starts by a whole family now living in, Ex in, in Egypt, and they all start to be fruitful and multiply. Now, when you read they were fruitful and multiply in, in Exodus chapter 
1 verse 7, says they were exceedingly fruitful and they multiplied and filled the land. That's a hyperlink. You guys know what a hyperlink is? I don't know if you guys know that. So hyperlink is when, okay, of course you know what that is. Okay, so that is a hyperlink. You click on that. It takes you all the way back to Genesis 1, okay? You're supposed to say, you're supposed to read this and go, oh my gosh, what's happening here is that this, uh, the, the project of the new humanity is picking up again. This is supposed to be a good thing. You're, you're pretty excited because you're reading this. You're going, oh, okay, this is how the story's going to go now. This is the renewed humanity. Here they go. They're, gonna, they're actually finally doing what God said to do at the very beginning. However, they, do, they are fruitful and they multiply. And you're supposed to be thinking, okay, God's moving on with this plan. But that's not what's going on because there's a king. There's a ruler. There's a villain. And the villain is introduced in verse 8. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Remember, the Genesis 1 project was um, male, female, co-ruling the earth. And now there's this like one ruler who's this tyrant, who's a villain. And he comes to power and he says, look, he said, these people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. They've, it's, they, he doesn't say God's blessing them, but basically God's blessing them. And they've become so numerous. He says, we actually have to start dealing shrewdly with them. Or they're going to start growing and they're going to, they might even start to outnumber us one day. And if war breaks out, they're going to join our enemies and they'll fight against us and they'll leave the country. We can't let this happen. So this ruler who's introduced, this ruler's number one concern is national security. He saw the Hebrew people were growing in number and his number one concern is the security of his nation. And what happens because of national security issues? A ruler with irrational fear of an ethnic minority in the name of national security justifies what kind of behavior? Slavery. This is, the, when you read Exodus, this is the story, by the way. Did I, did I say that? This isn't an old story. This, this is the story. Exodus 1.11. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. And so look at, there's actual building projects going on. Remember God said create culture and build? And they're doing that, but they're doing it in a completely wrong way. Now, do humans have to think about security as they rule the world together? Of course they do. I mean, there are wild beasts. There are elements to be sheltered from. We still live in a broken world where people want to hurt one another. Security is very important. Do humans still have to think about how we, to wisely steward resources so there's enough to eat? Like economics? Of course there we do. But there are ways, of, what the story is saying is there are ways of doing that that add to human flourishing in the Genesis 1 sort of ways. And there are ways of doing that that dehumanize and destroy and disintegrate society. See, the cultural man mandate from, from God was for humans to cultivate the earth. To cultivate the earth means to create culture, to build and create. So Pharaoh is actually creating culture. He's making culture, but he's doing it on the back of slaves. And the Bible is saying that this is wrong. It's right there. This is wrong. And this is not how God's story is supposed to go. Do you see this? This is decreation. This is the undoing of Genesis 1. This is not the way God intended it. See, the Exodus 1 portrait of human condition is quite, is th this Exodus 1 uh, portrait of hu the human condition is quite, quite relevant. 
And so the question is this, as you're sitting in, in Exodus 1, the question is, what will God do about all of this? What will God do about all of this injustice? And the answer is deliverance, salvation, and full redemption. And all of those are very rich, robust, amazing, gospel-y words. When I say deliverance and salvation and redemption, a lot of you are going, yes, amen, that's why I've come to church, this is it. But to truly understand what those words mean, deliverance, salvation, and redemption, you also have to understand the oppression and the slavery that the Israelites were under, because that's the whole context. Because they don't just mean spiritual things, we often think. They actually mean, they actually mean, uh, they're a lot broader in scope. What the story is telling us about deliverance and salvation and redemption is the scope of Egypt's oppression demonstrates the scope of Yahweh's redemption. So the way that Israel was, the story goes like this. The way that Israel was oppressed is the way that God wants to redeem. So the Israelites in Egypt are an immigrant, ethnic minority who had originally come to the host country as famine refugees and had been welcomed and given asylum, the asylum that they sought. They were given asylum there in Egypt, if you guys remember the end of Genesis. But with the change of power came a change of policy. One historian writes this, Exodus 1 portrays how vulnerable the Hebrews were to being made the target of irrational fear, political cunning, and unjust discrimination. They had no political freedom or voice within the Egyptian state, even though they had grown in numbers. This is a story with modern echoes. This, this story echoes over and over again throughout human history. So how were the, how were the Hebrew people uh, enslaved? How were they enslaved? If we want to know the, the scope of Yahweh's redemption, what is the scope of the oppression? Well, first, the Hebrews were enslaved economically. Verses 11 through 14 talk about that. The Israelites were exploited for slave labor. Rather than being able to use the, the granted land for their own benefit, if you remember at the end of Genesis chapter 47, they're given a land to be able to cultivate and use for themselves. Their labor is now taken advantage of for Egyptian agriculture and construction projects. And so uh, the same historian Christopher Wright says this. He says, an ethnic minority does the dirty and heavy work for the king of Egypt. The modern echoes continue. The Hebrews were enslaved not just economically, but the Hebrews were enslaved socially. Exodus chapter 1 also describes how slavery turned into state violence against the Israelites by the government sanctioned, state-sponsored genocide. Pharaoh gives an order to kill every, tells, he tells the midwives, kill every, every boy that is born. Every boy. And the midwives have that classic, classic response to Pharaoh. We, every time we get there, they're vigorous. Like, they just, ba babies are flying out. They just, poof. Like, <laughs> and we get there and it's already there and I, we just couldn't do anything about that. Sorry. And so this is, he, and then he, he, he goes to the midwives, he tries to do it sneaky. He says to the midwives, like, hey, just kill every baby boy. But then when that's not working, and the more he's oppressing uh, Israel, the more they're flourishing. Um, and by the way, this is the, the battle between the blessing and the curse, by the way. 
uh, Pharaoh's cursing and God's blessing at the same time. Uh, as this battle's going on, he just, he's over it. And he tells, he tells everyone. He tells the, the whole nation, kill every Hebrew boy. Drown them in a river. Throw them in a river and let them drown. Think about that. We read over chapter one really, really quick to get to Moses' story. Sit in this story. Sit in the feeling of what that must feel like. The fear of what that must feel like. Even as a, a pregnant mom, not knowing the, the sex of your baby. Thinking, if it's a boy, what's going to happen? Again, Wright says, Israelite families are made to live in constant fear. Nine months of fear as every pregnant mother waited for the news that should normally have brought them great joy. It's a boy, but would now bring them terror and grief. They were enslaved socially. The Hebrews were also enslaved spiritually. They're enslaved spiritually. In chapter one, the narrator highlights the political economic and social dimensions of Israel's predicament. But once Yahweh, God, appears as a character in the drama, we become aware of a further dimension. Yes, the, the Israelites are, are, are enslaved politically. They're enslaved economically. They're enslaved socially. But in chapter 2, when, when God is mentioned and God comes on the scene, we actually get another picture of how they're enslaved spiritually. The Israelite slavery to Pharaoh, meaning the system of like systemic and, and uh, oppression, has caused the Pharaoh um, irrational fear to oppress them. And his oppression of the Israelite people is an actual massive hindrance to their worship and service of the living God. So Pharaoh's oppression and Pharaoh's slavery is actually keeping Israel from being able to worship God. Now, the way that this is portrayed at the beginning of Exodus is through a play on words. The Hebrew word abad, which means to serve or to work for another, also to work as a slave, also means the word worship. So in Hebrew, the word serve or service or slavery and worship are all the same words. So when the Israelites cried out to God in chapter 2, they said they cried out to God because of their slavery. The word is abad. The same words can be used of worship or service to God. And of course, it was Israel's destiny to serve and worship Yahweh. But the question is, how can they serve and worship Yahweh when they were serving Pharaoh? How, could they, how can they serve abad God when they were actually being made to serve or abad Pharaoh? Do you see how the, the, the plot of the story is like thickening here? This is the whole plot of the story. They, they are people who were created to worship Yahweh God. They were created to worship God, but they couldn't because of their slavery to Pharaoh. So they cried out. And the play on words at Exodus is that they couldn't worship God because they were, they were made to worship Pharaoh. Or they couldn't serve God because they were serving Pharaoh. And it's the same word used. And the point is, is, is made sharply when Moses is told uh, tells Pharaoh, he says, let my son go so that he may worship me or abad me. Same word. So being under the yoke or the system of oppression from Pharaoh was actually preventing them from worshiping Yahweh. Now think about this for a minute. 
Let this, just let this story like kind of hit you and wash over you. They, they couldn't worship God because they were made to worship something else. It wasn't that God was saying, just worship me as slaves in Egypt. You can be in Egypt, just worship me as you're a slave. That's okay. There was something blocking their worship of God by being under the oppression of the Pharaoh. Do you see what this is saying? They couldn't actually worship God. God wasn't like, you know, I could be worshipped there. I could be worshipped. I'm everywhere. He, he, they, he, they couldn't. They couldn't worship God. There are things. This, what this is saying is that there are things, that there are behaviors, that there are systems that keep us, that can actually keep us from worshiping God. Like what comes to mind for you? Like think about these words and then think about maybe some of the teachings of Jesus. Specifically think about this very, this, this, this thing might pop into your, this teaching of Jesus might pop in your head right now. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So this, this is the language of Exodus, by the way. Like you are enslaved to something and you actually can't worship God and this other thing. Because this other thing has all of your devotion. It has all, or it has you in, it, in, its, in its grips, in its bondage, in its oppression. See, money just isn't just a tool. I know we say that. Money isn't just a tool. It can also have qualities that keep you under its oppression, under its rule. And that rule will keep you from the worship of God. Either because the money will rule you like Pharaoh, like it ruled Pharaoh, or like it ruled the rich young ruler, if you remember that story, who couldn't let his money go. Or because maybe you're a victim of a system of people who rule by money. See, when you get to the New Testament, all of this language here of, by the way, bondage, this language of, of slavery, uh, this language is picked up in Exodus and picked up over and over and over again and then reaches its full development in the New Testament when the, when the Bible talks about sin as slavery, sin as, sin as bondage. And when the Bible talks about sin as bondage, it's picking up on all the Exodus language. It's saying, this is, what, this is what sin does. This is what sin is. Sin isn't just like, oh, I just kind of like did a bad thing. It's actually you being under an, uh, the oppression of a ruler who's after to, de after to destroy you and exploit you. So Romans 6, 6, Paul says, um, by the way, this is the whole baptism passage in Romans 6, which is kind of fitting since today's baptism Sunday. He says, for we know that our old self was crucified with Jesus. So that the body ruled by, ruled, oppressively ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. You see, that, 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 this is Exodus language, by the way. What, what does that mean, slaves to sin? So read this and pull all of the Exodus information back up. Now, back, back to propaganda where we started. That hip-hop artist, right? He, he was saying that the, the African experience in America has been one of understanding what slavery means so that if you're a slave, you're under the rule of not just a person but an entire system that is not built to bring you favor or flourishing. It's actually built to destroy you. Wow. 
The whole system is built to destroy you and keep you under its power. So he says, so then when you go to Exodus, you know that this is, to, this is true. And so he says, when we turn to the New Testament and you see sin operating as a slave master, what it's saying is that sin is a system designed to destroy you. And he goes, for me, he goes, I get that. I 100% understand that. We play around with sin. We, 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 we talk about how, why does the church talk so much about sin? Sin is actually a system designed to keep you under its rule and under its bondage. And so what he was saying and his experience, he goes, oh, I get that. I know what it's like to live in a structure that's designed to destroy you. And then he said, and that's what sin is. Sin is a whole system now, we can be talking spiritually, we can be talking systemically, however, all of it is a system designed to destroy us, to destroy our soul, to exploit our soul, to destroy our lives. And so when we talk about sin in the church, we're pulling up all of this, this, this social justice language. This language here, we're pulling all of that up. We have to pull all that up because that's what the Bible is doing when it's talking about sin. Gary Anderson, the Hebrew prof at Notre Dame, writes in his book on sin. He says, sin is not just a thing. However, sin is a particular kind of thing. When one sins, something concrete happens. I think this is like one of my favorite definitions of sin. He says, when you sin, sin is like, actually sin is just something that you do. But when you do it, something actually, something concrete happens in the, in the world. Something concrete happens between you and a friend. Something concrete happens between you and a lover. Something concrete happens between you and a city, you and a people. Something real happens. One's hands may become stained. One's back may become burdened. One's, one may fall into debt. Those are Old Testament uh, uh, metaphors of sin. And the verbal expressions that render the idea of forgiveness follow suit, he writes. Stained hands are cleansed. Burdens are lifted. And debts are paid off. So forgiveness, that's the forgiveness language in, in the Old Testament. It is as though, he writes, a stain, weight, or bond of indebtedness is created ex nihilo, out of nothing, when one offends against God. Sin creates this ex nihilo thing. Like God creates ex nihilo, right? He creates something out of nothing. Our sin does the same thing. There wasn't this thing in the air. There wasn't this thing between you and a friend. There wasn't this thing between you and a people group. And then sin creates this thing. And that thing has to be dealt with, he writes. And that thing, that sin, has created and will continue to haunt the offenders until it has been engaged and dealt with. Sin, there's something, I share that quote because sin... Our sin and the sin of offenders creates a reality that must be dealt with. God has, has to do something with this sin. It says that the cry of the injustice rose, rose to God. He heard this and he had to do something. He heard this and he had to deal with sin. He had to deal with Pharaoh's sin. He had to deal with Israel's bondage. God couldn't just say, oh my gosh, look what's happening to Israel and Egypt. You know what? Israel, I love you. I love you. Pharaoh, I forgive you. Can we just all like get along? God doesn't do that. No one reading this story would be okay with that. 
No one would, 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 no one would, would side with a God who's like, Pharaoh, I love you. You're on a growth curve. You'll get there. Israel, I love you. Guys, can we just get along? Okay, cool. I'm, I'm out. Like that, no, no one would be satisfied with that. What does God do? And the answer is he does justice. God does justice. Exodus is about justice. The second time the word justice is used in the Bible, the first time I read to you with uh, Genesis 18 with Abraham, the second time it's used in the Bible is Exodus 6.6. 6, right here. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arms and with mighty acts of judgment. Keep that scripture on the screen. Mighty acts of judgment. That word judgment is actually the word justice. I wish it was translated justice in our Bible. The word in Hebrew is mishpat. Same exact word. What God is saying is I'm about to bring justice. See we read judgment and we're like oh, judgment. Oh, that's just so mean. God's judging everyone. That's not what's happening here. God is, his, the judgment here, what it's talking about is God acting justly to set the world right. God acting justly. When we get to the plagues and you start tripping out because of all the frogs or whatever, God is acting justly. God is enacting justice on the world to make it right. Justice involves confronting the people who are stripping people of dignity. See, Pharaoh is stripping the divine images of dignity from the Hebrew people. And he's releasing evil upon the world. And there are consequences before God for this kind of behavior. And it is an act of God's mishpat, his justice to change it. And if they don't stop and if they don't change, God will deal with them in acts of justice. So what this means is that full redemption, salvation, redemption means that God will save his people from political bondage, from economic bondage, from social bondage, and from spiritual bondage. He won't just save them spiritually. He won't go, I will save your souls. He will, he will go after them and save them politically. He will save them economically. He will save them socially. And he will save them spiritually so that they can worship him. The whole book the whole book of Exodus is about God living with his people and his people living with their God and them being in right relationship. And what's keeping that from being true is the bondage of Pharaoh. And so God will step in and deal with Pharaoh. And he has to. See, God is, is after setting the world right. And that begins in Genesis 1. And it looks like humans living rightly. And God is after getting it back to that shalom. And if you're a victim of this world not being right, God desires to restore and redeem. If you are in the way of that justice, if you are acting unjustly, if you are using your money unjustly towards someone else, if you're using someone's body or your body unjustly towards someone else. If you are living in a way that's unjust, God, I say this in the, in the, in the nicest Jesus-y way I can. 
God is against you. And he's not against you to destroy you. He is after restorative justice. He's after to, to restore your life. To restore you. He gave Pharaoh so many opportunities for restorative justice. Even the judgment of killing the, the firstborn. He, there's a plague of death that goes through, by the way. And you're like, well, isn't that just like Pharaoh? Well, actually, I don't want to get there yet. I don't want to give that away. I'll get there in a second. <laughs> if you are in the way, God is set against you. He wants to change you and he will give you every opportunity to change. But in the end, he will have his way. He will restore. And if he has to destroy your campaign of, of sabotage to do it, he will. He will ultimately do that. Now, what does that look like? One of the, I think one of the most poignant and beautiful pictures of this in the Gospels is Jesus and the woman caught in adultery in, Acts, in, in John chapter 8. And you might remember the story. If you're new to the story, let me recite it for you. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, by the way, they walk in, you're supposed to go boom, 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 right? The teachers of the law and the Pharisees walk in and they bring a woman caught in adultery. In the, it says the very act of adultery. They rip her from the bed that she's sleeping in with someone who is not, she's not married to. And they made her stand in front of the group. And they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses, recall the Exodus story, it commands to stone such a woman. Or actually it says stone such women. It doesn't even make it personal to her. She's just, a, she's just a woman now. She's just a thing, an object. To stone such women. Now what do you say? Now this is very complicated. This is as complicated as segregation. This is as complicated as racism. This is as complicated as you, this is as complicated as, as slavery. This is complex. How, how do you begin to unravel this thing? Jesus steps right into this complicated mess. Now, the thing, the reason why it's complicated is that it does, actually does say that. They're, they're right. It actually says that in the law of Moses. Sexual morality is something at the very heart of what it means to live in the God's just and right way of his creation. Sexual morality is, is, is very near to the heart of God. But Jesus looks around and he sees all kinds of levels of injustice. First off, there's the man, where's the man that she was sleeping with? I mean, that's the first question. He's not there, it's just the woman. So there's a, there's a, actually there's a system that will allow this woman to be punished, but not the man. That system is unjust. And the unjust system that does not honor the law or the heart of the, the very heart of the commandment that is in the law of Moses. So that system is wrong, and Jesus knows it. Second, they are just using this woman to try to destroy Jesus. They're using this woman. They're using her in the same way that probably the man who she's sleeping with is using her as well. She's just an object to be used. 
And they are wrong. They're in sin. The very people that are doing this are in sin. And they're guilty of sin too. So Jesus does this crazy thing to just like build up the tension. He starts writing on the ground. No one knows what he's writing. Don't try to guess. He's just writing. Everybody is looking. What is he writing? Just dramatic pause. Jesus is great at the dramatic pause. I imagine it getting very, very quiet. And he stands up and he says, and he asked her, and he said to them, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. He knows everyone in there is guilty of sin. Some, some writers think that he was actually writing people's name and then their sin after that, which I think would be awesome if Jesus was doing that. <laughs> Jesus says, whoever is without sin in this audience, go ahead, throw the first stone. You're right. And no one does. All that happens is everybody drops their rocks and like leaves. And she's alone in the whole building, alone, emptied out, just her. And then Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. So Jesus here, in this very, very, very complex thing, has a way of, of, of pointing at everyone and saying the whole thing is unjust. He has a way of looking at the system that the Pharisees have created and go, this is an unjust system. This is wrong. And he looks at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and goes, and you're wrong. And then he looks at the woman and he says, and you know what, you're wrong too. You're in sin. That is not the way I created your body. That is not the way to live into my kingdom. But he doesn't condemn her. He doesn't say, and now, therefore, I'm going to destroy you. He also knows that she is vulnerable. He also knows that she has been a, uh, a victim of a system that's like, that's like oppressing her. And so he, he restores her. This is like restorative justice here. He restores her. And he says, go and leave your life of sin. Or maybe more popular, you might know it, go and sin no more. That's, I think he gave her a possibility. You can actually go and leave this life. You can actually go and live into a different way. This is restorative justice. By the way, this is Exodus. This, this story here in John 8 is Exodus. This is what God's doing, but it's way more vivid in Exodus. God is after restorative justice. Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is the, is the one that comes in and he brings and he enacts God's justice. And he does that ultimately by receiving in his own self punishment for our sin. The 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 penalty for our sin was upon him. This is, this, is, this is the new Moses. Jesus is the one who brings us in, who gets us into presence with God, who brings us, who gets us into peace, who gets us into restorative justice. And so when I talk about sin and when we talk about sin, I know some of you guys are like, oh my gosh, church and you guys in your sin talk. Sin is systemic. Sin is after to enslave you and destroy you. And what I hope happens is a paradigm shift is that you don't just see sin as you sleeping around though that is sin 
that you start seeing sin as the systems that we voluntarily enter into that are not restorative in their justice. That we start to see in the paradigm of, of Exodus, uh, we start seeing in a paradigm of honoring each other's dignity and worth made in God's image, image bearers. And when there's oppression like that happening, like that is wrong. That is not the way that God has designed that we live as humans. See, the suspense of Exodus story will build until we start to see that God is not merely intent on liberating slaves, but on reclaiming worshipers. So God isn't just going, hey, I want to free you. Guys, I want you free. Free, be free. (laughs) He's not intent on doing that. Let my people go so they may go and worship me. Let my people go so they can actually live into the way I've created them to live. Let my people go so I can give them new ways of being human. I can give them these commandments to live under that are actually there for the flourishing of the world. Let Let my people go so they would be a light to the nations. Let my people go. God is not just intent on liberating you. God wants to make you, reclaim you as a worshiper. Let's pray. Lord, I, I ask God that our paradigm, our, our mental imagination would begin, begin to be shaped and reshaped into the story of Exodus, God. That we would see that you would make us a just people doing justice in the world by the way that we, that we, the way that we live. And I will confess that this is so complicated, God. We live in a world where we live like, it feels like we live in Babylon. We live in it. We breathe it. We might even feel like we work for Pharaoh. Like, how do we do this? How do we live here? But God, I pray that our imagination would be shaped. I know this might take a while. I know it might not be until Thursday of next week that this starts to make sense to us. We want to give ourselves over to it. And I pray for those that when I talk about sin and slavery, medical language would also talk about addictions. When we talk about sin like this, that is cycles of being stuck, I ask, Lord, that you would begin to bring liberation. I pray that you would reach into our gathering even now and begin to free us. I pray that you would start to make pathways for us to to become fully human through through all kinds of ways, through community and therapy and spiritual direction and prayer, God. Prayer, we, when we pray, you hear us, God. Just like you heard the plight of Israel, you heard their prayers. And I pray you would hear our prayers. And I know that you do. Hear our prayers as we, as they go up now. Hear our prayers as they, as, as, as we begin to like raise up our voices and say, Lord, save and deliver. Bring freedom in our nation, in our city, in our souls, in our community. Do this in the strong name of Christ. Amen.